to leave them. He's going through the cross to the Father. And if you were with us a couple weeks ago, we saw how this announcement caused the disciples much trouble. They were filled with distress and, and trouble because of it. It would have been a devastating announcement to them. All their expectations of the kingdom and all their hopes in Jesus as Messiah and what he would do seem to be coming to an end. On top of that, they've come to know Jesus and love Jesus and learn from him and look to him and depend on him. And now he's saying he, he's going away. So what are they going to do without him? And what are they supposed to do without him? And how could this be anything but very bad news? So that's what the disciples are feeling. And so Jesus wants to comfort them. He tells them that they have no need to be troubled by anything that he's telling them. In fact, everything that he's saying, the fact that he's going away from them, it's to their advantage. It is to their good. But how? Well, he's given us a number of reasons for this already. We saw it the past couple weeks in verses 1 through 14. He gave them reasons why his departure is good news for them. But there, there are still lingering questions. They say, okay, yes, I see, Jesus, that you're going to prepare a place for us. You're going away so that we can be with you in, in heaven with the Father forever. What about in the meantime? What are we to do? What about now? What are we to do without your presence? Who's going to help us as you have? How can it actually be better that you are leaving us? And this really is the question that all of us ask, right? This is where we find ourselves in this time between Christ's two comings. He is not here with us physically. So how is that good news? And you've probably asked that question yourself, haven't you? What could be better than the immediate physical presence of Jesus right here and now? I mean, surely it would be better if we had Jesus here physically with us now, wouldn't it? But in this passage we're coming to, Jesus is going to say that that is not true. It's better. His departure would not result in less of his divine presence with his own. It would not result in less of his intimate fellowship and assistance with his disciples. It would result in more. To them. Because of his departure, Jesus and the Father and the Spirit will now be present with believers in an even greater way than had Jesus stayed here present on earth. So he makes this point in verses 15 through 26 of this chapter. Look at the uh, handout I gave you in the very back. I gave you a table. Show you how I think this passage unfolds. It unfolds in cycles. Not everybody agrees on that, but as I work through it, I think that's how it's, it's working out. And notice each cycle begins in the same way. Step one, if you love me, you keep my commandments. It's an identification of true disciples. And each cycle ends in a similar way. The first cycle ends with the Spirit coming to indwell believers. The second cycle ends with Jesus coming to indwell believers. And the third cycle ends with the Father coming to indwell 
believers. So now, in this passage, Jesus is saying that in his departure, the entire triune Godhead is coming to make his home in a believer. That's why it is good news that he departed. As Jesus departs, he does not abandon his disciples, even for a short time. But he departs so that he could be even closer to them, and the entire Godhead would take up residence in them. One of God's central purposes from cover to cover in the Bible is his presence with his people. We see that at the very beginning, and we see that at the very end. And everything in between is how God is progressively unfolding this plan of being present with his people. So that's what made the temple such a unique, important thing. It was another step in God's plan to restore his presence with mankind, with his redeemed people. And that experience is going to be finally realized in the new heavens and the new earth of Revelation 21 and 22. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's how it culminates. That's where everything is moving toward. And the point Jesus is making here is that that age of Revelation 21 has already, in some sense, begun now in the present. God's presence has become, for a believer, more intimate and close than it was in the temple in the Old Testament. And it's become, be, begun because Jesus has gone to the Father. That's why it's good news. A new stage in God's plan has come. A new advancement in God's plan has taken place in Jesus' return and glorification. But how? Well, that's what we're going to find out in this, in this passage. So as we get started, let me just ask you, do you know this about yourself? Do you know this about God's presence in you? Do you know it experientially? Do you know the astonishing privilege it is to live on this side of the cross? I hope by the end you will, and you'll see how important and practical these truths are for our lives. So I've entitled this whole passage, verses 15 through 16, Christ's Gift to Loving Disciples, the Indwelling Presence of God Through the Spirit. This morning, we are only going to cover the first cycle in this really rich passage. It's in verses 15 to 17, which gives us the gift of the Spirit's indwelling presence. The gift of the Spirit's indwelling presence. And verse 15 begins the same way he'll begin each cycle of this passage with a test. With a test. The test, the mark of true disciples is loving obedience to Jesus. Look at verse 15. It says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's the mark of all true disciples. So let's break this down a little bit here. First, the fundamental mark true disciples bear is love to Christ. Up to this point in the Gospel of John, the focus has been really exclusively on Christ's love for his own. We have seen it repeatedly. He's come to love his own. We have not heard of love going the other direction up to this point. Disciples loving Christ. It's been Christ is loving his own. Chapter 13 began with 
the sort of overarching statement. He's come to love his own to the end, to the utmost. Christ's love has dominated the gospel, but now, for the first time, in the gospel of John, we get a statement about a disciple's love for Jesus. And that's significant. True disciples love Jesus. False disciples do not love Jesus. And this is going to be repeated in verse 21, 23, and verse 24. True disciples love Jesus. But why? Well, according to John, any love we possess toward God, toward Christ, is always a result. And it's always a response to his prior love to us. You know these verses. Well, 1 John 4.10, and this is love. Not that we have loved God. That's not where the purest form of love is seen. Any love we have is a response to God. True love is seen where? That he loved us first and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love because he first loved us. In other words, our love for Jesus as his disciples is always a response to his loving us first. And loving Jesus is the only possible response of disciples who have come to know and experience his love. So you see, love of Jesus is not the same thing as faith in Jesus. We're saved by faith. Faith is the hand that receives the awesome love of Christ as its own. That's how we're saved. But when that happens, we cannot help but respond in love back to him. But where there is no love, it's evidence that there's no faith. It's evidence that we've never apprehended his love toward us to begin with. So how can we know that we actually love him then? If that's the mark of true disciples, that we love Christ because he first loved us, what does that look like? How do I know that I have it? And that's what Jesus tells us next. The consequent mark disciples bear is obedience to Christ. Look what he says, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love of Jesus always leads to obedience to Jesus. Notice he gives us this conditional statement, if, then. It's meant to give us a test whereby we are to test our spiritual condition. If you love me, you will. Notice it's the future tense. You will keep my commandments. If love of Jesus is present in your life, then this will be present in your life. If there is gravity, then you will be held to the ground. If you start floating up, it's because there's no gravity, right? This is the test. This is how you know it's there. So what does he mean by that? You keep my commandments. Well, notice he expands this in the following verses. In verse 23, he says, you keep my word. In verse 24, he says, you keep my words, plural. His word represents the sum total of his teaching, the entire package, everything he has taught. His words represent the individualized sayings of what he has spoken to the disciples. And here we get his commandments, plural, again, referring to the many individual specific commandments that he's given mm -hmm. to his disciples. 
So it's teaching in its entirety and it's teaching down to the particulars. Okay, that's what he's talking about. Well, what does it mean that you keep it? Well, this word keep means simply to guard or to watch over or to treasure up. This is how true disciples do demonstrate their love to Christ. They pay attention to what he says. They keep watch over it. They humbly listen and submit to everything he says, down to the details. And it implies obedience, doesn't it? I mean, it would be hypocrisy to say, I keep and treasure his words, but I don't, don't care to do them, right? So all true disciples love Jesus, and they display that love by leaning in, by paying attention to, by believing and doing all that he speaks. And I think we know this principle really well. If my wife is continually sharing her heart to me, but I do not pay attention to her as her husband, but instead I just give her half of my attention while I'm playing on my phone. We talked about this on Tuesday morning. Meme's nodding her head. <laughs> I'm not loving her. And if that's the pattern of my life where I don't value and listen to and pay attention to her words, evidence I do not love her at all I show my love to my wife by leaning into her words her words communicate her person it would be a contradiction to say that I love her but I don't care about her words real love for my wife looks like putting my phone down when she's talking it looks like really trying to understand what she's saying to me so that I can know who she is, her, her fears, her desires, her wants. It looks like leaning into what she's saying so that I can respond to what she's communicating. And that's what Jesus means by keeping here. And that's the test that he gives as he begins this first cycle. In the lessons ahead, we're going to come back to this again and again. We'll flesh it out into some particulars. But why? Why does Jesus begin here with this test? Why does he begin every cycle with this test? And the answer is because all the promises that he's going to give us below are contingent on it. They're promises which are true only for true disciples. He wants us to know our condition. He wants us to know if we are real. Because when we know we're real, we know these promises are ours. And he gives us this test so that if we fail it, we'll say, I'm not real, so that we would repent, so that these promises could be ours. That's why he begins this in this way. So that is the test, how he begins. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's what true disciples look like. They love Christ, and they obey his word in submission to him. Then he goes on here with the response of Jesus to his loving disciples. Verses 16 to 17, the response of Jesus to his loving disciples, the gift of the Spirit. Begins in verse 16 with this request for the paraclete made. Verse 16. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. There's a lot going on in this verse, so let's break it down a bit to help us get a better grasp of it. First, we get Christ's request. So 
So notice, notice how it's unfolding here. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father. In other words, Jesus is responding to their loving obedience with this request. It's a response. Disciples love Jesus, and Jesus responds with this request. And we see this pattern again and again. And it might seem kind of interesting to you. You mean Jesus responds to us? He, in a sense, loves us more in response to our love to him? We see that actually in the very uh, next verse, verse 21, in the next cycle it is. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. You see the responding there? As believers show their love for Christ by loving obedience, they will experience his love in return. Now we need to make a couple of points here. Number one, we need to remember that any love we have for Jesus is the product of what? Of his love to us first, right? So there's a cycle going on here. He loves us, to which we respond by loving him. To which then he responds by doing what? By loving us again. There's a cycle. And I think the point is that's how relationships work. He initiates it with love. Disciples respond with love to him. And he responds with love to them. It's a picture of an intimate, growing, maturing relationship how relationships work and so the other point we need to make is that believers are not earning this request that Jesus is about to make Jesus isn't paying up here okay you love me enough now I'm going to give it to you it's not what we see it's in the context of a loving relationship is the point what he is asking here was bought by the cross alone we don't earn it he's responding to their loving obedience by making this request which brings us now to the Father's gift. He says, I'll ask the Father, and the Father will give you. He makes a request to the Father on the behalf of his disciples whom he loves. Let me just say this is a one-time request at his glorification. This is not saying that this is going to happen, that you have to love him a little bit in your life, and then he's going to make this request for you. That's not what he's saying. Remember the context. He's talking to the 11 disciples, and he's about to go to the Father. Okay? At his glorification, he's going to request this. And the request here is specifically for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to unpack that in just a minute. But why make this request at all, Jesus? Why not just send him yourself? Well, in the following chapters, we're going to see that the Spirit is sometimes sent by the Father. And he's sometimes said to be sent by Jesus. So the question is, which is it? Does the Father send Jesus, the Father send the Spirit, or does Jesus send the Spirit? And the answer is yes, right? <laughs> they do, together. They're both involved in the gift of the Spirit. Christ is involved in that he accomplished everything that was needed for the gift of the Spirit in your life. He's involved as he perfectly submits and depends on the Father. And the Father is involved as he always responds to Christ, as he's always after the glory of his Son. And that is what we get here. That's why Christ makes this request. Okay, so we have Christ's request. We have the Father's response and his gift to it. But just what is this request? 
It's the paraclete's permanent presence. Notice we have all three members of the Trinity here, don't we? Son, Father, and Spirit. Jesus requests the Father for, look what it says, another helper. The Greek word here is the word parakletos, where we get our word paraclete. Um, the paraclete is a Greek word, simply means an advocate. It was usually used in a legal setting, as someone that came alongside somebody in a court. Could also be for any assistant. The word literally means to be called alongside. Somebody who comes alongside another to assist them and to help them in a work. But notice what Jesus says. He says, I'll give you another paraclete or another helper for his disciples. When he says that, I think he is implying that as long as he was present on earth with his disciples, he was the paraclete. He was their assistant. He was the one coming alongside them as he taught them, as he comforted them, as he helped them. But now he's leaving. And as he does, he tells them he's going to give them another one in his place to represent him, to carry out his work while he, while he goes. And just what this paraclete will do, we're going to find out in just a, a couple verses. But here Jesus is just giving the promise. Now look at the rest of the verse. The Spirit will be given such that he will be with you forever. See that? He'll be with you forever, or literally unto the ages. The gift of the Spirit to disciples is permanent. Now I just want to note here that the gift of the Spirit spoken of is something more than regeneration. The disciples here are clearly already regenerate, right? What's the evidence? They love and trust Jesus. You need that before Jesus is going to give you the Spirit, right? They were regenerated by the Holy Spirit just as all the Old Testament saints were regenerated. Old Testament believers needed divine heart surgery. They needed the opening of blind eyes just like any of us need it. And they experience that by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, just as we do. So what Jesus is promising here is something more than regeneration. In the Old Testament, the Spirit regenerated people, but he did not indwell people. The Spirit was a temporary gift given for specific tasks. And he came and went. He could be grieved. He could be removed. But the amazing thing we discover at the baptism of Jesus is that the Spirit descended and then did what? It remained on him. Remember that? It remained on him. It permanently rested on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus never displeased the Father. He always pleased him. He always obeyed him perfectly. And the Spirit permanently resided on him. Look at the verse from chapter 8, verse 29. He said, He who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. You say, okay, Mike, I see that. The Spirit permanently rested on Jesus, but what about us? What's the connection with us? Why would we have it permanently? I displease him all the time. It's because you are in Christ. Disciples are identified with Christ such that all that belongs to Christ is theirs. 
If a peasant girl were to marry the prince of the land, then two things would happen. He would inherit and deal with all of her poverty just as if it were his own. He would absorb it and take it all to his own. But that's not all. The other thing that would happen is that she, by virtue of her marriage, would be treated as though all that belonged to the prince were her own. That is what it means for believers in Christ. He takes all of your poverty as his own, and because you are in that relationship with him, all that belongs to him is your own. You're connected with him by faith. And now, not only a select few get the Spirit, but all of Christ's own. And now the Spirit is not a temporary gift, but he is a permanent one, just as permanent as he was on Christ. But it will only happen if Jesus is glorified. Flip back to chapter 7 very quickly. Verse 39. Chapter 7, verse 39. Jesus said this about the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given. That's what we're talking about. Yes, he was at work in the Old Testament, but he had not been given in this way. Why? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. In the Father's presence, having accomplished the cross and all the work. But when he does, your redemption is accomplished, and he sends the Spirit to be permanently yours. You say, okay, Michael, I see that. But why is that good news? What does the Spirit do? He's a helper, a paraclete, comes alongside. In what way? How do I experience that? And that's what he gives us now in verse 17. The identity of the paraclete is explained. Look at verse 17. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You see him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus calls him the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth. Obviously referring to the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? He's the spirit of truth. I think it means he's the spirit who's come in service to the truth. His main task will be to communicate and bring the truth of Christ to his disciples. He's the spirit of truth. So who is the truth? John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, the Spirit's main job is to come in service to Christ, who is the truth. He's come not to be the ultimate thing, if you will. Jesus is not the stepping stone to the greater experience, which is the Holy Spirit. Jesus sins and gives his Spirit, so the Spirit would do what? Bring people back to Christ. See that? That's the gift of the Spirit. That's why he gives the Spirit to his disciples. How else does he do it? Well, in John 14, 26, we're told that the Spirit will bring the teaching of Christ to remembrance to the apostles. Again, we need to remember the context in these verses. He's not talking to everybody. He's talking to the eleven. The Spirit's going to bring it to their minds. Again, truth, what Christ has taught. Chapter 15, the Spirit will bear witness about Jesus to the apostles. 
chapter 16, he will guide the apostles into all truth because he'll take Jesus' words and speak it to them and this way glorify Christ. In other words, he has given a unique work as a helper in a unique way to the apostles to help them write scripture. But while the apostles received him in a special way as a paraclete to help them do this, every one of us has also received him as a paraclete. But it's not so that we could write scripture. It's not so that we could have the words of Christ communicated directly to us by the Spirit. No, we experience it in a different way. We experience it as the Spirit brings us to faith and matures us in our faith in the writings of the apostles and through their writings to Jesus himself. So look at this verse from 1 John. Apostle John is speaking, we, speaking of the apostolic writers, the apostles, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, to John. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know, look at that, the same title, the spirit of truth. How does the spirit of truth work in your life? It's by bringing you to and nourishing you in the teachings of the apostles, the gospel of John, and all the other writings of the New Testament. In other words, one of the primary ways the gift of the indwelling spirit is experienced in your life and how he brings Christ to dwell in your heart now is through the written word. We're going to get more of that in the weeks to come. Look next. Not only is he the spirit of truth, but the world is ignorant of him. It says, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor does it know him. The hymn here clearly refers to the Holy Spirit. In Greek, it's, it's absolutely clear. It's not talking about the Father or the Son. They don't see the Spirit, and they can't receive the Spirit. They don't know him. The world is this God-rejecting, rebellious system of man, and Jesus says, says that they're blind to the Spirit. That's why they can't receive him. You say, okay, well, how are they supposed to see the Spirit? He's invisible, isn't he? <laughs> so how can the world be blamed for that? I think the answer is actually pretty simple. Those who saw Christ and knew him in his ministry as he really was, they saw and knew the Holy Spirit who was resting on Christ, who was working through Christ. We saw this last week. Jesus says that I am the image of the Father. If you know me, you know the Father and you've seen the Father. But the world who is blind to Christ didn't know or see the Father. And it's the same thing with the Spirit. The world didn't see the Spirit. They didn't know the Spirit because they didn't know Christ as he really was, as the Messiah in his ministry. That's why they can't receive him. They don't know Christ as he really is. And that brings us to our final statement here. Disciples do know him. They do know the Spirit. And the Spirit will indwell them. Look at the rest of the verse. But you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. The apostles, and by implication, all of Christ's disciples, do know the Spirit. Well, how? Well, it's because he dwells with you. The ESV says dwells, it's literally he remains with you. He continues with you. 
Well, how did he continue with them? Thinking the same way that we just said. He remained with them as he remained on Christ in his ministry. They, they saw him. They saw him at work. They saw and heard his words through Christ. The Spirit had remained with the eleven all through Jesus' ministry. That's how they know the Spirit. And that's why they can receive him. They already have a relationship with him through Jesus. And because all that is true, Jesus now turns their focus to his glorification. And he says the spirit that's been with them this whole time will now be in them in a new way. That's Jesus' gift to his disciples. This is why he can tell them he's not abandoning them. That's why it's to their advantage that he goes away. Because as he does, he will give to each of them the Holy Spirit, which has remained on him for his whole ministry to now permanently indwell them and to do the work that we just listed out, the communication of truth, maturing you, filling Christ in your heart through truth. Spirit would be the gift of a paraclete to represent Jesus while he's away. He comes alongside the apostles to help them write scripture, and he comes alongside each one of you and fills you. And he does that through the word. So, the presence of God, which once filled the temple by the Holy Spirit, has come to take up residence in your heart. Know that about yourself. That's astonishing. That's not all. Next week, we're going to find out that the entire triune Godhead has come to take up residence in your life. Eternal life of God dwells in you. That results to experience genuine fellowship with God as has never been possible before. And it will result in abounding fruitfulness for the glory of God. So do you love Jesus? Do you press into his words? Do you carefully seek to obey him? Of course you fail. Do you repent of that? Crack the cross? Do you bathe so that you can get back to loving him? Not because you're trying to earn anything, but because you love him so much, you want to return that to him? So you should. Where you don't have that, what do you do? You don't try to conjure it up. You go back to the cross. You always begin at the cross. I don't have love for Christ. What do you do? Repent of it. Go to the cross, and guess what? That love will begin to flow, and then you will start to love him in return, and then get to work, press into his words, and obey. Number two, know who you are. Know what's been given to you. Know the spirit of the living God dwells in you. And he experienced that. Experience his work as you abide in the writings of scripture. So any questions, comments? That's a lot. Uh, yeah. Could you, um, I was trying to look through the notes just to see a little more about the difference between this image, Pentecost and the spirit. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it mainly that per- idea of permanence? Like right now it's... I think Jesus is speaking that's a really good question I don't think I clarified it so thank you for asking it I think Jesus is speaking um, saying now but it's in the sense of when when he's glorified so he's saying now to show them this is really soon to take place so it's not yet happened they're not indwelt with the spirit now it happens when he is glorified and he sends the spirit so I think it is looking forward to Pentecost the time when the spirit comes upon his disciples and fills them and uh, baptizes them in this, in this new and unique way. It comes on them and it comes on all believers. So, really good question. Thank you.
Mr. Roger. One thing that always has been a blessing to me as a thought that if Jesus had remained on earth, I wouldn't have had a chance in the world to ever meet him. Mm. But now he comes in the person of the Holy Spirit, and now he's with me all the time. Amen. And that was to me the advantage of his going, because I would have never met him on, uh, as a person. Yeah, amen. That's very good. Very good. We'll see that really clearly in that second cycle we go around when it's Jesus himself that will come and take up residence in you. It's a, it's a sweet thing. It's amazing. Jeff. Did you read or have ever read on the term Jericho? Because both Jesus and the Spirit are given that term for the description of Scripture. But does that necessarily mean the roles change with this idea of the advocate between the Spirit and Jesus? Or is there just a, a Trinitarian nature to the idea of the character? Yes, yeah, so if I think I understand your, your question correctly, is can they simultaneously be characters? Is that what you're saying? Or We're essentially, yeah, fulfilling the same role, but mm-hmm. the, ultimately the Spirit is giving us a remembrance of yeah. the things that Jesus has taught us. Are they really fulfilling different roles in that way, or is it the same? Yeah. I say they're, they're carrying out, so I'd say that the term paraclete is a broad word. We don't want to press it too specifically. It simply means he's coming alongside for assistance. Jesus did that in his earthly ministry. The Spirit does that on earth, right? It's interesting. This word comes up one more time in John's writings in 1 John chapter 2. If anyone sins, we have what? An advocate with the Father, a parakletos. Same word. There that legal advocate really stands out. He appeals for you on behalf of the Father with his own blood, Jesus Christ the righteous. So I'd say they're both simultaneously still paracletes. Jesus obviously has a unique role in heaven. The Spirit's carrying it out on earth. That makes sense, but does that answer? Yeah, yeah. Question. Good. Good question. Questions, comments? Alright. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you. God, how great you are. How small is our vision of you? How our priorities are so easily out of line. We think the most important things are things that you don't tell us are the most important things and things you tell us are the most important things that we don't really consider it naturally. Reorient our priorities, Lord. Help us to know the amazing reality it is to be a believer in Christ. You dwell in us. And oh Lord, that we would experience that. Grow in holiness fellowship with you, enjoying your presence, and we do that not in some mystical way, but through your word. So we know you and love you and trust you, and in a real sense, you're right with us to the end of the ages. Lord, we praise you. I ask that you would use this lesson to cause us to be people who love Jesus more, who obey him, not to earn anything, but as a response, the only logical response of love to him. Father, that you would Work your kingdom, do your works in and through us however you wish. It's in the name of Christ that we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.